Hey everyone, welcome back to the Practicology Podcast. This is episode 59 and we are so glad that you've joined us. This episode marks the end of two series in a way here on the Practicology Podcast. In January, we started a series on the spiritual disciplines and one of those disciplines or means of grace was learning and reading. And that led naturally into our current series, which has been a reading challenge through the book Key Bible Concepts by David Gooding and John Lennox. And this is our last episode on going through that book, and Mike and I are going to cover the two chapters on the final judgment. But before we get to that sobering subject, please do remember, if you've read the book over these past couple of months, please send us an email at info at practicologypodcast.com. That's info at practicologypodcast.com. And we'd be happy then to enter your name in a draw for another free book by David Gooding. So we hope that you've enjoyed the book and please let us know if you have read it and we'd be happy to put your name in that draw. You have up until March the 19th at 11.59 p.m. Central Time. We're extending past the original deadline of March 15 for you to read the book and email us. And if you've enjoyed Mr. Gooding's teaching in Key Bible Concepts, you should check out the website myrtlefieldhouse.com. It's a really well done website and has loads of good material that he has taught over the years. Some uh, audio messages that you can download, as well as articles and links to books that he has written. All right, that's enough introductory material. We are turning now to this solemn doctrine of the final judgment. Mike, this isn't something that we like to think about or talk about, to be honest. I don't think you and I will be bantering back and forth very much in this episode, but tell us what you're calling this episode, Mike, as we try to show how the doctrine of hell can shape our life practically. Yeah, this is a tough episode for me to do, but I'm calling it How Christ Makes Hell Serve His People. What do we do with hell? Is it something for us to be embarrassed about, apologize for? Are you thankful for hell? Are we supposed to be thankful for hell? Does God need us to be his PR managers, you know, who manage his public reputation by minimizing hell or redefining it or defending it? As a little aside, I'm using the word hell here not in its strictly biblical meaning. I'm using it as a grab-all term for everything to do with the final judgment and all that it entails. And so we can reword the question, are are we supposed to be thankful for the final judgment, that evildoers will be punished, that there is a lake of fire, a second death? Well, people in the Bible are surprisingly thankful about hell. And uh, Gooding and Lennox mentioned Psalm 98, which says, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity, Psalm 98. So here are people in the Bible and they're praising God for his judgment. What about people in heaven? What do heaven dwellers have to say about hell? Well, I'll just give you one example from the book of Revelation. In chapter 11, it says the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Yeah, and those aren't easy texts for us or not texts that we're accustomed to having read and thought about, Mike, but you're saying that these texts of Scripture indicate there's a sense in which God's judgment and His wrath are something to be thankful for, something even to be glad about. Yeah, that's that's right. Now, I want to quickly balance that with the fact that our Lord Jesus wept over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And Paul in Romans 9, he anguished at the prospect of his people going to hell. So I'm not for a moment talking about us taking a disgusting sense of pleasure in talking about hell or in telling people that they're going to hell or anything like that. But what I am saying is hell is a horrible reality and yet it's not one that we have to be ashamed of or apologetic for. Growing in sanctification, which is what you covered last episode, Matthew, growing in sanctification means becoming more godly and becoming more godly means learning to view things from God's perspective. It is no sign of spiritual maturity to be apologetic for the doctrine of hell. Well, we're hardly getting into this subject so far, Mike, and I think everybody can sense this episode. I hope they can. They sense this episode might be a little challenging for our minds and our hearts. A quick question for you, though. When you say we shouldn't be apologetic for hell, just elaborate on that, please, because some people have real emotional or intellectual struggles with hell, and while not apologizing for hell, surely we should still be willing to patiently help them work through those issues, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I think we should be very sympathetic with people's difficulties and try to help as much as we can. Uh, many of us have had our own difficulties working through these doctrines. And, and Gooding and Lennox give some help in their two chapters on the final judgment. I'd encourage you to read them carefully if you haven't yet. And uh, there's maybe a couple places where I'd respond a bit differently. I still think that uh, this Key Bible Concepts book is a really good place to start working through these issues. And just for one example, a, a common problem uh, people have is with the length of hell. They say, well, look, I mean, someone commits only a lifetime of sin, and yet the punishment is everlasting. That, that can't be fair. But, but two things can help us. Number one, as Gooding and Lennox point out, this objection assumes that people in hell will stop sinning, but they won't. Yeah, it's only people who have been born of God and have his seed abiding in them that won't keep on sinning. Obviously, these individuals have not been born of God because they are in hell. Right. So uh, the punishment is everlasting, but the sin is everlasting in that sense, too. They'll keep on sinning. So that's number one. But then number two, even here on earth, the length of punishment doesn't correspond to the length of time it took to commit the crime. So, uh, for example, it might only take a few seconds to pull a trigger. And, and murder someone. And yet, even here on earth, people will then face perhaps a, a lifetime of imprisonment to pay for their crime. So, no, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get help or help others with difficulties about hell. But, but here's what I do want to do with the remainder of this episode. I want to show that God makes hell serve us. That's right, that this side of the cross, hell is forced into serving the well-being and joy of all Christians. When God says in Romans 8 that God works all things together for our good, the all things includes God's wrath and judgment in hell. And, and there's a number of texts in the Bible that suggest this. I'm just going to give one. It's in Romans 9 where <clears throat> Paul says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. So here Paul is saying that God's judgment magnifies the riches of his glory of showing mercy 
on those who are saved. God makes his judgment serve us. For all those who are saved from hell, God presses hell into service for you. So if you are a Christian, here are five or six things Christ forces hell to do for you. And uh, we'll just go through them fairly briefly. The first one is this. Hell saves us from hopelessness. Hell saves us from hopelessness. My most visceral experience of hell saving me from hopelessness is probably when I was in my uh, previous workplace at the lunch table reading a newspaper article about what two individuals did to poor little Tory Stafford in Ontario. And I won't mention the perpetrators' names. I um, don't want to give them that honor. But as, as the horror of what they did to that poor little girl fell upon me, uh, my anger and grief couldn't be contained. And I remember a colleague actually walking in and asking if I was all right. I remember going back to my desk, logging uh, into Facebook. And at some point during that day, I, I wrote a new status, something like, praise God for hell. I got some pushback, including from some Christians. But but I think there was something right about that sentiment. Why? Because hell saved me that day, saved me from hopelessness, right? We feel indignation every day. As, as we record, Matthew, uh, Russia is attacking Ukraine without any provocation. Civilians are being targeted. A children's hospital, a children's hospital was bombed. And if there's no final judgment, if there's no hell, then the whole universe is filled with hopelessness. If there's no hell, it means one million years from now, it won't matter if a country's leader ruthlessly killed and oppressed, or if he showed courage and stuck up for the weak. If there's no hell, there's no justice, there's no righting of wrongs, and all the virtues like courage and kindness and self-sacrifice that we instinctively honor are actually meaningless, and the universe just doesn't care. So this is why God's people are thankful for hell, even as we recoil at the thought of hell. The reality of final judgment means that life is not hopeless. Mike, since you have brought up Vladimir Putin's bombing of Ukraine and also the individuals who murdered Tory Stafford, let me ask you, do you want those people to suffer for their sins in hell or do you want them to repent and be in God's kingdom? Well, the thing I want would want more than anything else would, yes, that they would repent and receive forgiveness and, and experience God's transforming grace in their lives and but we, we also know that not all will repent and many will stubbornly persist in their evil. And for those who stubbornly persist in their evil, um, I, I don't want them to be able to escape uh, getting the due rewards for what they've done. Yeah, I think of uh, Jonah, you know, when he preached judgment to Nineveh and the people repented, therefore the judgment did not fall. And Jonah was mistakenly upset. The better thing had happened. The people did turn to God. Now, had they not turned to God, they would have gotten the judgment that they deserved. But instead, they received God's mercy. And that was something that Jonah should have been rejoicing in, right? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I'm reminded of something Abraham Lincoln apparently said. He said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And uh, this is maybe a separate episode, Matthew. I do think there's a place for Christians today even to pray some of the imprecatory psalms in, in certain situations. Um, but, you know, the ultimate fulfillment of praying for justice, for 
those who've done evil to to experience justice. So, and the ultimate answer to the to, to to prayer for them would be that they receive God's mercy and change and and ask for forgiveness and seek to restore what they have done. So, um, yeah, as as Lincoln says, "Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends?" That is the Christian's ultimate desire that they would be saved. All right, good stuff. And while it does help us to know that people won't get away with their evil deeds, if they remain unrepented, they will face punishment. A second way in which hell helps us is that hell saves us from vengefulness then. It saves us from vengefulness. People won't get away with their evil deeds, but thankfully it's not up to me to make them pay. If we take justice into our own hands, we'll only increase injustice in the world. If I take revenge on my enemy, then someone on his side will take revenge on me, and then someone on my side will want to respond again, and it gets worse and worse, and the number of victims multiplies. Only if I know that God is going to take care of justice and that he's going to do so extremely thoroughly can I then break the cycle of injustice by trusting God? This is what the apostle says in Romans chapter 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Yeah, so true. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a famous defender of this truth. And he's able to speak with real power on it because uh, he's from Croatia. He's witnessed the violence in the Balkans. And he basically says that only people who live in comfy suburbia can afford to ditch the doctrine of hell. A God who refuses to make an end of violence wouldn't be worthy of our worship, he says. Uh, only the doctrine of final judgment can break the cycle of violence, as you've said. And, and Tim Keller has written on it like this. He says, if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put things right, I, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. So yes, hell saves us from vengefulness. And, and thirdly, it saves us from joylessness, from joylessness. Sometimes we have a really bad day. Uh, even worse, sometimes we go through a really bad season in life, and I certainly don't want to minimize it. But, but however serious our bad days are, the Christian can remember, I deserve to be in hell right now, but by God's grace, I'm saved. And the Bible trains us to do this often. For example, in Ephesians 2, we sort of have this before and after picture, what we were before salvation and what we were, what we are now after. It, it says at the beginning, we were dead in our sins, following Satan, people deserving of eternal wrath. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ and saved us. So we can try this the next time uh, we have a bad day. Maybe you, you've lost your joy and, and your thankfulness because things have gone seriously sour for you. Well, just take a few moments to remember uh, where, where you deserve to be forever and see if Christ doesn't make hell save you from joylessness. Amen. Thank you for that. Relatedly, fourthly, hell saves us from lovelessness. Sometimes on those bad days, we forget how much we are loved. And the text you just cited in Ephesians 2 is relevant here. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us. 
The fact is, if you take away hell, you are actually minimizing the love of God. That may sound counterintuitive, but God has loved you enough to save you from hell. Think of it this way. On the cross, the Lord Jesus suffered the punishment we deserve because he loved us and wanted to save us. Therefore, whenever someone tries to minimize or reduce God's wrath and judgment, they are actually minimizing the extent of the cross work of Christ and minimizing God's love for us. Oh, that's such a helpful point. And I just want to summarize, we've, we've looked at four ways that Christ has made the hell that used to terrorize us. Now Christ has made that same hell actually serve us. So hell means that injustice will be punished. It therefore saves us from hopelessness. The fact that the righteous judge will deal with all injustice means I'm saved from vengefulness. Number two, I can leave him to avenge me and others. And then remembering what I've been saved from means that hell saves me from joylessness. And Matthew, you've just shown us how hell saves us from lovelessness, from uh, a sense that I'm not loved. When I consider that the eternal punishment I deserved is precisely what my Savior endured out of love for me, my sense of being loved by God is secured and strengthened. And, and I have two more quick points for us to, to cover. Number five, hell saves us from sinfulness, from sinfulness. We've already mentioned a specific sin that hell saves us from. Uh, it saves us from committing the sin of vengefulness. But hell also motivates us to turn from other forms of sin as well. Paul, for example, tells us in Colossians 3, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He goes on to mention uh, uh, how we must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from our mouth. But what, what is he doing here? He's, he's using hell to motivate us. He's saying, look, see how offensive these sins are to God? It's, it's these kinds of sins on which the wrath of God is coming. And so, and so turn from them, put them away. He does the same in Ephesians 5. He mentions sexual immorality and purity and covetousness and filthiness and crude joking and so on. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's Ephesians 5 verses 3 to 6. So, of course, we often feel these very sins tugging at us, tempting us. Sometimes we fall and indulge them. And when we do, we confess it to our Father and turn from our sin to Him, like we learned in the episode on repentance. And when we do so, we say, Father, I'm sorry. I know that this sin I've just committed is precisely the kind of thing that your wrath and judgment will one day fall on. That's how much you hate this thing I've done. And in love, you have caused that judgment to fall already upon your Son. Please make this motivate me to turn decisively away from this sin in my life. And that brings us to the final one that we'll mention here today. Number six, hell saves us from prayerlessness. At least it should. When Paul thinks about the judgment that will befall the unrepentant, he says in Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Remember when he wishes himself a curse from Christ for the sake of his brothers. He wants them to be saved. Hell saves us from prayerlessness. Not only saves us from taking vengeance on our enemies, it enables us to pity them and pray for their salvation. It turns us outward and makes us renew 
our commitment to witness and to pray for the lost. Thanks, Matthew, for giving us that last one and helping us to work through these six ways in which, uh, because of Christ, hell now serves the joy and well-being of the Christian. This takes us to the end of this episode of the Practicology Podcast. But I'd like to remind you that this is not where the Key Bible Concepts book ends. It ends with a chapter on that wonderful word, salvation. If you're a believer on Christ, praise God that he has saved you from wrath and judgment. If you're not a believer, well, you need to know how how the Bible ends. It talks about the return of the Lord, the new heavens and earth, the river of life, and so on. And then it says this. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation 22, 17. So if you're not saved, this is what the Lord is saying to you right now. He's saying, come. Come and receive forgiveness and flee from the wrath to come. Amen. Wonderful words to remind our audience with, Mike. Thank you so much. That is the invitation from the Lord today. I just want to remind us as believers as well. Sometimes, sometimes we wonder why our preaching about judgment and hell doesn't have more of an impact on people. And sometimes I wonder if the reason is that it hasn't impacted us as speakers enough, hasn't impacted our own hearts. I remember this story of Robert Murray McShane uh, talking with his friend Horatius Bonner. And McShane asked Bonner what he had preached on Sunday evening, and Bonner replied that he had preached on hell and the lake of fire. And after a long pause, Robert Murray McShane asked him, did you preach it with tears? Now, I know some people are more given to tears than others, but that, that at least reminds us that it should touch our own hearts and it should be preached solemnly and with compassion. And to unbelievers here, I'm telling you that hell is a real place. God's judgment is real, but God's salvation is real. God has really raised his son from the dead. And that living man in the glory is calling for you to repent and come and put your faith in him today and be saved from hell, be saved from the wrath of God and the, the slavery of sin today and have a home in his heavenly kingdom for eternity. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We do pray for your salvation and God's blessing upon you. Thank you for these good words today, Mike. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, maybe I could just close with this verse, Matthew. Those of us who have trusted in Christ, we, we get to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. <laughs>